This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Ben Carson, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, was up on the Hill. He was asked about an Office of Minority and Women Inclusion, which uh, is called AMWI. That question was asked by Representative Joyce Beatty. The exchange did not go well. Uh, are you familiar with Amwe and what it is? With who? Amwe. Amway? Amwe. Come on, Mr. Secretary. Now, I asked you this when you were here last year, and you asked me to be nice to you, and you turned to your staff, Amwe, and you have an Amwe director. And we wrote you a letter about it, and um, we, Office of Minority Women and Inclusion. Not Amway, um, we. The question from Joyce Beatty, an African-American female, was, were you familiar with the Office of Minority and Women Inclusion? Clearly, the answer is no. Unfamiliar with this office, whose purpose is to include minorities and women. So Lee Zayden rode to his rescue, claiming, what an unfair question. The reason why you wouldn't recognize the term Amwe in HUD is that HUD doesn't have Amwe. Great saving face. HUD has no office for women and minorities. In his last testimony, the secretary was asked about it. He said in this follow-up session, huh? What? He was totally ignorant of the concept that he had previously been asked about. That's why it adds up to an unfair question. Being asked, are you familiar with this thing I told you about? That is unfair. Oh, but it didn't end there. Representative Katie Porter asked about REOs. As you look it up, I'd also like you to get back to me, if you don't mind, to explain the disparity in REO rates. Do you know what an REO is? An Oreo? R. No, not an Oreo. An R-E-O. R-E-O. Real estate? What's the O stand for? E-organization. Owned. Real estate owned. That's what happens when a property goes to foreclosure. We call it an R-E-O. He went with Oreo cookies. Could have gone with the speed wagon, so I guess he made a choice there. The Secretary of Housing should probably know REOs. Uh, Mr. Carson, under your tenure... Has Freddie Mac expanded its loan portfolio? Uh, I'm sorry, Congressman, I think you're mistaken. Bernie Mac is actually dead. Baby's Kids was a great show. No, no, Mr. Secretary, not Bernie Mac, Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. The mortgages guaranteed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will cost the federal government $32.5 billion, according to the CBO. I'm sorry, again, I have to correct you, sir. CBO, you don't see BO, you smell it. No, no, sir. CBO is the Congressional Budget Office. It's it's a government entity like uh, like DARPA. Oh, I, lo- I loved her antics with Greg. I think it was on ABC, though, and Bernie Mac was on Fox. No, Dar- the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Maybe you're more familiar with financial agencies like or international ones like the IMF. Sir, please, you needn't insult yourself and with such salty language. I wouldn't say you're an MF. Asking me some crazy questions, though. Oh, my God. What am I going to have to do to get an answer out of this guy? Submit a FOIA request? 
That won't be necessary. I, I wrap my lunch in cellophane. On the show today, I spiel about a horrific turn taken by and to a beloved character. It's kind of tasty. But first, one of my favorite college basketball players of all time is on the show. Now, you got to know this about me. I'm a St. John's fan, meaning I root for a Catholic school that my father attended, which has not won an NCAA tournament game in the last 20 years. Fits in with the whole Jets-Mets-Knicks thing. But 25 years ago, Felipe Lopez was the best high school player in America, and he chose to go to St. John's, and what that meant was hope. I watched all four years of his college career, and then I watched a new ESPN documentary in their 30 for 30 series about Felipe Lopez. This documentary is available on ESPN Plus today. The name is The Dominican Dream. Felipe Lopez is the film's subject, and he's here next. Basketball began in Springfield, Illinois. Soon thereafter, New York City took it over. If you look at the list of the top basketball players in high school in the United States from New York City, it's almost the list of the greatest basketball players ever. You have Lou Alcindor, Stephen Marbury, Billy Cunningham, and you know who was the number one player in the country when he was a high school senior? Felipe Lopez. Unlike all these other guys, he is from the Dominican Republic. He went to St. John's where I as a young guy in my 20s, rooted my heart out for him. He is now the subject of a 30 for 30 documentary on ESPN called The Dominican Dream. It's great, and I'll tell you why it's great. Even if you say to yourself, wait, Felipe Lopez, do I remember him from his four seasons averaging about six points a game in the NBA? But the person of Felipe Lopez comes through. In fact, the person of Felipe Lopez is right here next to me. Thanks for doing the documentary and thanks for coming in, Felipe. Thank you so much for having me out here. It's an honor. <laughs> when they approached you, did they? how did they say what the story was that they wanted to tell? Did they want to tell a story of a great high school kid who was a little disappointing? Did they want to tell an immigrant story? How did they say the story was going to go? Well, honestly... Uh Initially, I, I really didn't want to do no story. Right. I'm like, you know what? After the uh, uh, Sports Illustrated cover, I think I had enough, uh, you know, uh, publicity. But uh, the way that uh, the producer, Jonathan Hack, uh, uh, presented it to me, it, it was really appealing. Uh, you know, he, 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 he showed me a video of his great-great-grandfather uh, selling newspaper in front of City Hall. And he just started talking about how he was the, the the reason why his family and his family came to the United States. So, you know, the whole immigration process was something that I, I was able to relate with. And, yeah. you know, the, the story talks about my history playing basketball. But at the end of the day, he also touched on elements that is really important to me as far as like being an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. So you are on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which the documentary kind of surprising to me. But then, you know, I'm in my 40s. It, I don't need it. But maybe someone in their 20s does. The documentary points out, oh, this was a really huge deal being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, it's the biggest deal in the world. And there you were before you even put up your first shot at St. John's. Did it become sort of a blessing and a curse to be on yeah. that cover? Yeah, definitely. Both. Uh, the the blessing because there I am five years after I, I come to this country, barely speaking the language that I'm speaking right now, 
but portraying a different type of image to the Dominican Republic, to the Dominicans in New York. Right. You know, you talk about New Yorkers, uh, we recall, you know, Washington High as being one of the area where the most drugs were being sold. So it, it was pretty groundbreaking and special to me because I grew up around that time. I knew what it was to, to say that you were Dominican and kind of had to hide a little bit of your identity because you didn't want to be associated with, with everything that was happening. And once you sprang onto the scenes, there was no hiding because fans of yours with the Dominican flag would show up at every game, like two or three whole sections of wherever you're playing, Madison Square Garden oh, yeah. or the Rose Hill Gymnasium in Fordham, just overrun by Dominican people. The emergency aisles were packed with people sitting in it. The sidelines were packed. It was just an unbelievable high school atmosphere. And <laughs> sophomore year, we had to move them to bigger venues. 16, 17 years old, you're selling out Fordham, you're selling out Iona. That's how much a draw he was. Drums, dancing. I mean, if they could have barbecued a chicken at the stadium, they would have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we probably barbecued it outside anyway. <laughs> so it's a whole party. Where it was a went. party. That's and that's a sense of being uh, being Latino, being Dominican. We we have a sense of just being happy. Uh, our music pretty much expressed it for us. You know, we 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 brought that kind of energy to the scene. But my game was kind of a little bit electrifying at the same at the same the same way. So. There were the other schools, which is every other school in the country, recruited you, and Bobby Knight showed up, and Kansas, and North Carolina, and these are all great schools, but I'm just kind of wondering how you and your Dominican fan base would do in Bloomington, Indiana. Exactly. I don't know if, it, I don't know if it's quite a exactly. Right fit. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I visited UCLA. I went to Kansas. I went to Florida State. They're just not another place like New York. You know, there's just such a magic about being in New York. And even though, you know, four years at St. John's, I I felt those were my best years. You know, if you take away basketball. Where you you enjoyed yourself. I really, truly enjoyed it. You know, my four years at St. John's, they, they, I consider them the best years of my life. You know, the relationship and the friendship that I was able to build. You know, uh, I I became a man, you know, uh, those four years at St. John's because a lot of the responsibility that now I carry on, I learned how to deal with those things at St. John's. Plus, the fact that I ended up with a degree. Yeah. You know? It was it was what they always say that a player or what they don't say it now so much. But when you were younger, the line was, you know, you go for four years, you get your degree and then you'll be set up for life. And people nod and give it lip service. But you did it. You actually did it. And you were turning down, as the documentary shows, million dollar contracts along the way to do it, to really get your degree, because it was obvious that it was really important to you it's and your an family. to my family, my, my mother being a teacher for 25 years, my father being a, a, a blue Worker, it almost felt like within the family, it's really important sometimes to to be that one person that breaks a cycle. Yeah, you know, my, my my mother never graduated, but she gave me the opportunity to go to school. My father as well. They sacrificed for us. You know, in the documentary they show when I graduated, when I graduated, my whole family surround me like, and they feel like they graduated as well because, in a sense, they did. Yeah. You know, I, I I ended up my career. I tore my ACL, but. Everything that I have done, it have been based on the fact that I was able to get my degree. From a strict dollars and cents point of view, 
it wasn't the right choice, though, was it? I mean, I looked over your salary for four years, and you get the minimum for someone who's drafted in the first round. It's around 500000 a year. And then because of your injury, you can't, you can't play anymore. Mm-hmm. If they were offering you a million to go overseas, or if you could have been a top five pick after your freshman year, or even after high school, would you have made more money playing basketball, do you think? Let me, let me just, okay, let me, let me rephrase a little bit on that. Yeah. How many other athletes have made way more than I but have ended up being bankrupt. Absolutely. So, you know, in a sense, it's like we're looking at situations on how to be successful. Not what you make, it's what you keep. Yeah, It's what you keep. It's how you handle it, how you live your life. You know, I didn't have, I didn't make all the millions, so I didn't need to buy a big big mansion. Do you think going to college for four years helped you, help you keep your money? money It helped you understand your value and how to, you know, manage yourself a little bit better than, than just you know, live your life recklessly. Do you think if you were the same kind of number one player in the country recruit today that your college... I'm gone. Career, I'm gone. Don't ask me that question. Gone right. after a year. I'm gone. Yeah. I'm, I'm gone. Quick. Because we're living at a different time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're living at a time where you're able to, to know what KG did from high school, what LeBron have done from high school. But, you know, before me, there was no one else. Right. So I, I could have been that there one da- guy. There was I could have been that Jonathan. You remember Malone. Jonathan, that kid that went from high school and ended up like playing like one or two years. Right, right. Or, Jonathan Bender. Right, Jonathan Bender or Corleone Young. Remember exactly. this guy? Yeah. You know, so I could have been that as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, okay, you pretty popular. You probably made some good money, but it's about the gain and what you were able to provide yourself. I hated being in the bench. Like my few years in the league, yeah, I was in the bench. I'm working extra hard because I'm not a bench player. Like, don't tell me I'm a bench player. I don't believe you. Yeah. You know, so that's 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 what happened. I, I, I really didn't have a blueprint as far as like, oh, yeah, I should go to the league from high school because such and such did it. Uh, and, and, and now it's so easy for any guys to have a little bit of talent and be like... Yeah. They're gone. I also think just from an NBA perspective, so let's say you are a guy who's not seen as a starter. A way to work your way into a lineup is have a niche. Be a shooter, be a stopper on defense. But you weren't that. You were a guy who always had the ball, dominated the ball, made things happen with the ball. Yeah. Maybe these days they'd teach you, you'd work on your three-point shooting or they'd teach you some other aspect of the game and find a way to use your unique athletic talents. Well, I agree with you. Because, you know, being a player that dominated so much, you go into the league now, and um, I'm the 24th pick. And my contract is barely a, less than a million dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I'm playing with KG. KG's making 25 mil. Uh, Chauncey Billups is making, uh, I don't know, 10. Wally Serbia is making 12. And then there's me, less than a million. The option, I'm the number fourth option. So yeah. don't think that I'm going to be taking all the shots that I want to because I don't have the green or neon light that some of these other players have. What really helped me a lot to just play aggressively all the time was the fact that I was a little bit ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have no clue who I'm playing. Right. You could be I like Iverson or whoever. I, you know, yeah. my mind is not thinking about who you are. It's like what you're capable of doing yeah. because I want to make sure that I put the best effort into this game. Yeah. And that was the only thing that I, I knew how to do and, and helped me to really just focus on every single day, making sure I was the best player on the basketball court. Did you trash talk when you played? Nah. I would hype my own self up. You know, I would just, 
you know, just just do like a Dominican, you know, merengue or, or, or bachata uh-huh, or something. Uh-huh. But it was not like to taunt the other person, just to keep myself hyped. Do you think that you came a little early? Because we saw Victor Cruz as a giant. He put he did the merengue and he became he this huge thing. He did the salsa. Yeah. Maybe people didn't know what you were doing. I mean, now nah, we're, embrac- no clue. we're embracing Latin culture a little yeah, more. Yeah, but again, I had a band. Yeah. I had people with the with, with right. the uh, guida, with the with the congos and everything. So I'm listening to the music while I'm playing. <laughs> so you know, once in a while, the music would hit me. I would like had to do a couple of moves. <laughs> Are your friends, are your teammates from St. John's, they're in the documentaries, Endon yeah. Hamilton, the great center, Tariq Turner, who I think still broadcast the games. Are you still close with those guys? Yeah, those, that, and those, that's the reason why I say that, you know, St. John's provided me with the best years mm-hmm. because those are really my brothers. You know, those are my, my family. Uh, we have stayed close throughout the years. Everyone have gone to do their own career, but, you know, at least we always found time to, to make sure that we embrace each other, we get together, go out. Uh, we give each other, you know, advice on whatever things that could be. But we understand why we're doing it, you know, because we all went through the same struggle. Uh, and even though, you know, the documentary is about, you know, Felipe Lopez and everything else, they all embrace and they all like, you know what I'm saying? They they felt the pain and they all like kind of just wanted the best, not just for myself, but for all of us. Yeah, they wanted, I think they wanted to... Well, provide testimony for you and who you are. They wanted to be part of this. I got the sense that they wanted to be part of the documentary. So the Felipe Lopez story is remembered as not this great high school phenom who maybe was a little disappointing in the pros, but the Felipe Lopez story is a guy who used basketball to get a lot of happiness out of life. Let me just say something. I know you say that, you know, a little disappointing in the pro. (laughs) Uh, I'm very proud of what I was able to do in the pros because there was no other... Latino doing it the way I was doing it. You know, when when I went to arena, even though I wasn't playing, I would see people from Mexico, Venezuela, uh, Panama, with the Dominican flag. So it, it obviously it means something for a lot of these people that did not have a voice. So maybe sometimes the participation in the court where might be important for people that have pulled that that tag that I should be in the the next Michael Jordan. But to that Latino family that went to see the game, yeah. just the fact that they saw someone that it looks like them, it spoke the same language, to them that was a success. Yeah, you know, so like it, the story that the documentary is bringing out is that success could be carried out in a whole different way. Um, tell me about the club team that you fund, and tell me about the club team that you fund the Dominican. And where do you live most of the time? So I'm here. I'm in New York. Uh, I'm in the Bronx. Do you live near Felipe Lopez Way? Uh, we couldn't find the sign. I know, but uh, we couldn't find the sign. One hundred fifty second, one hundred and fifty. Yeah, in Grand Concourse. <laughs> but I lived on one fifty first during my high school. I, I moved out from there. But um, uh, so yeah, I'm in the Bronx, and, and I split my time a little bit uh, to the Dominican Republic because I, I, I just found the time to to be the president of of my club. I, I'm running a, a program that that holds over three hundred kids. So I'm giving back what I was giving. Man, I, I honestly, I'm blessed. And in, in, in the reason why, you know, I, I'm so involved into the community is because I remember being a young kid and not having nothing. You know, and, and, and it's the opportunity for the kids to just be able to be dreamers. You know, I'm so I'm so happy that, you know, I was able to make that contribution to my to my to my community. Yeah. What NBA team do you root for? Right now, 
Man, I'm just hoping that the New York Knicks, we get it together, man. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> we have had some really tough years lately, man. I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. But, uh, you know, Golden State is really a team that really impressed me because of how unselfish they, they play. Yeah. Uh, you know, even when they incorporated KD into the, the squad, you can tell that they, that KD needed to learn how to play with those guys mm-hmm. because they just so unselfish. If you played for them, can you imagine the lanes they would open for you? Oh, the man. wide open spaces? Right. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I, on that team, I would not need to take a jumper at all. <laughs> just drive. Just drive and kick out in case I needed to kick out. All right. Number 13 from Rice High School in St. John's. Red Storm during his time there. Felipe Lopez, the Dominican dream is on ESPN now. Felipe, great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. Recently I was watching TV and came across what can only be seen as a betrayal a betrayal by clever-seeming writers of a beloved character. What did they do? They violated backstory. They contradicted good sense. They willy-nilly engaged in an extremely disturbing act of defilement. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's an M&M. It's the flavor we've all been waiting for. And here to help us launch this delicious product is the newest member of our team, the hazelnut spread M&M Spokes Candy. Now, at this point in this commercial, the curtains opened and we get the reveal. There is no candy on the pedestal. There are some arms and legs there and a chocolatey stain. Soon the camera shows all the other M&Ms, the M&Ms that we've come to know and believe to be friendly, anthropomorphized candies, complete with personalities and foibles. They're standing on the side of the stage. They're looking guilty. And they have stains on their mouths. Oh my. What? You ate the new spokes candy? Not all of him. No, Yellow Peanut is right. You monsters left his limbs. Didn't satisfy your disgusting cannibalistic appetites? What the hell are the M&M advertising people doing? They made one of their candies eat another candy. They're eating each other like a pack of starving, diseased vermin on a ship lost at sea. How could you break faith with the entire M&M's universe? You worked so hard to establish them. You gave them faces and personalities. Red's a kind of jerky alpha male. Orange is a worrywart, coded as Jewish, I think. Ms. Brown, she's super smart. And Green's horny. Everyone knows Green's horny. Horny for the flesh of her brethren, as it turns out. You can't have the M&Ms eating each other, eating their, what are they, their friends, their relatives, or maybe even more disturbingly, maybe they're the hazelnuts, a member of a rival tribe. He's marked as different or the other M&M, and he falls prey to them, literally. Think about how this moment must have happened. I mean, we see the discarded carcass of hazelnut. We see the other M&Ms licking their lips. Does it take a lot to picture in your mind what transpired just moments before? Hi, guys, I'm Hazelnut. It's great to be part of the team. Yes, Hazelnut. We were thinking of having you over for a quick bite. 
Well, hi, and hi there, Green My. You are friendly. Oh, you're putting your lips on me and all. Hey, hey, watch the teeth. Whoa, whoa, watch the teeth! You, you just bit me! And you, you bit me too! Wait, no! What are you doing? This can't be happening! Oh, the candidity! This really is a crazy and I think quite a disgusting way to go with candy. You expect a fair amount of transgression from Skittles, but these guys eating each other? I think I'm going to be sick. Now, there is another TV experience that also engendered a similar reaction. Invested fans appalled at the turn that an established character took. I am talking about Game of Thrones, and here I have to say, spoiler, I guess. Oh, by the way, spoiler for that horrible cannibalistic death in the hazelnut commercial, I guess, if you, if you TiVo that commercial and were waiting to watch it or until it came out on DVD. Anyway, for all the griping about water bottles and Arya setting off like Fievel Mouskowitz to discover the new world and everything else, I was just really annoyed by one development, mostly. Bran. Bran as king. Detached. Know-it-all, inscrutable Bran. The reason I was pissed off is that I'm a journalist, and I just think this guy is going to be the worst on the Game of Thrones meet the press. Oh my God, the vague, frustrating answers. Chuck, thank you for having me on, though I knew you would, as I know all and everything that has happened. Why do you think I came back and was bait in the God's Wood and had Hoder Hold the door. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But it makes sense to me, Chuck. Do you have a sense of normalcy yet? Normalcy? My little sister killed a zombie that controlled every other zombie in the world, and my bastard brother stabbed a queen while her 40,000 guards weren't watching, and her dragon was sad but not vindictive. Normalcy? What was your initial reaction when you heard about this? I control animals with my mind. And to reference one of my favorite critters, this has all been batshit crazy. Do you look forward to the moment where you won't think about it every day? I think about everything every day, for all days, until the end of time. I think about the North, my homeland, having defected from my kingdom, meaning I, the ruler of this kingdom, am not from a part of the kingdom. That seems weird. My sister seems to think this was a good idea. Seems pretty bad to me. And by seems, I mean I know it's a bad idea, because I know all and see all and can never be surprised or caught off guard. And yet I still have a king's guard to defend me, huh? Weird, right? Not weird. I understand. You might think it's weird. I don't. I can't. I know everything. Like I know the people of the North, and I, I also know the people of Dorne never have anything to do with the other kingdoms. Westeros for the rest of us, I suppose. And by suppose, I don't mean suppose. I mean I know. I know all. On this issue, we are so divided regionally. And we're so divided geographically on this issue that this one feels like it's very hard to find a compromise because people that live in a certain community feel defiantly one way and people that live in another community feel defiantly the other way. Yes, the community that I would favor is the community with the dragon. I would say whoever has the dragon has the advantage in any argument. So I'm trying to find the dragon. It does seem to me like pretty much the most important thing in the world. And by seem, I mean it clearly is. It's quite clear to me. Don't understand why. It's not clear to anyone, except I do understand. I think they might be idiots. Of course, I am all-knowing and all-thinking and embody the sense of all time and every animal and every tree. Let me ask you this philosophically. Is there a limit? Yes, actually there is. Squirrels. I can't figure out squirrels. Weird, huh? If I shared my views, really shared them, it would, it would break you, Chuck. But it was my pleasure to the extent that I experienced pleasure, which I don't. 
The McConnell agenda is dark and full of terrors. Valor Margulis, Chuck. Valor Margulis. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They ate our former producers. They have no regrets. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She was the top recruited senior producer out of high school, and we landed her over UNLV, Duke, and Gimlet. Now, we have a newsletter every week. It encapsulates and provides links to every show that we aired, has some links to things that I read, and also answers a trivia question. And here is that trivia question. So the uh, Mars M&M factory in Hackettstown, New Jersey, supposedly makes enough M&Ms a day to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. You might know me and my love of Olympic-sized swimming pools, but I ask you this, how many M&Ms would it take to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool? That's our question. Sign up for the newsletter at slate.com slash gist news. The gist, run HUD. This guy couldn't run a pizza hut, which actually is what he thought the job was. Umpur de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.